Do you ever just want to hear how the famous found fame? How the poor man became a millionaire? How risk and comfort gave someone more freedom? Honestly, do you ever just wonder if everything will be okay? Welcome to the Y'all Podcast, where everyone has a seat at the table. I'm your host, Laura Jean Bell. In this space, I will share stories about life, Jesus, and the South, stories of the past and the ones that are still being written to instill hope without fear of the future. Meet with me around the table, sharing tales about the lives of others, of business and risk and heartache and joy and failure and success. Let go of the fear that hopelessness is your destiny and fill up on the encouragement that mercies are new each day. Because the best thing about a story is that there is a beginning and an end. Y'all, welcome to Flashback Fridays. I'm so excited about this project. This has been something that I dreamed up in the process of just planning out this podcast. These episodes are episodes where I sit down with my dad, Grover Plunkett, the master storyteller, the man who made stories come alive in my life. I like to call him the guardian of memories because that's really what he is. He shares stories over and over and over and over and over again because he never wants us to forget them. He doesn't want us to forget where we came from, the things that we experienced, and the things that those experiences taught us. In these episodes, he is going to share stories that he listened to growing up, sitting at the feet of some incredible storytellers. But also some of these stories are stories that he experienced himself, all of them leaving you hope filled. Y'all, I'm so glad that you're here listening in on this because it is going to be so much fun. I'm so honored to have my dad on the show, sharing stories the way I listen to them, sitting around a table, drinking coffee. So y'all pull up a chair, grab some coffee with me and my dad because it is flashback Friday. Hey y'all, I'm so excited because I'm sitting here with my dad and this is the very first of the Flashback Friday episodes um, that we are going to be doing together. And this is just basically a sit down where he shares stories of his life, ones that were pretty significant. Um, And these are the stories that I grew up listening to. And a lot of these are so valuable and they're so encouraging to me that I feel like more people outside of just my family need to hear them. Um, But this beautiful thing that my dad has always done is he shared these stories because he never wants us to forget where we came from and the people that we came from and the value of the things that those people did for us. So without any further ado, don't cry, dad. I'm not crying yet. Yes, you are. I'm I'm hanging in there. Okay. (laughs) So without any further ado, this is my Uh, sweet daddy, uh, Grover Plunkett, and I'm going to let him just tell you who he is. Okay. Well, we know Laura. When um, when someone asks you who you are and what your name is, they're really talking about two different things. Uh, my name is Grover Plunkett, um, a name I'm quite proud of because that was my grandfather's name. Mm-hmm. Uh, my middle name is Linton, uh, which was my other grandfather's name. So uh, those names are very important. That's that is that is my name. Who I am. Oh man, that's a much harder and more complicated thing to say or to describe because 
uh, when when someone asks me who I am, I'm more likely to say I'm a child of the land. Mm-hmm. I am um, I'm an heir to a a great civilization, which is the South, mm-hmm. and and the South is very different from any other place in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when uh, when you ask someone from the South who they are, they can't uh, describe that in any simple way because it's indescribable. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's something that's felt and tasted and, and breathed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my name is Rover Plunkett, and I grew up in a, a wonderful uh, community uh, called New Harmony. Uh, New Harmony uh, is very much a part of who I am because it is, it is very typical of in its development of what many places in the South were developed or how it was developed. Mm-hmm. Uh, my great, great grandfather settled that area. Mm-hmm. And uh, my grandfather, who would have been the grandson-in-law mm-hmm. of my great-great-grandfather, um, he married into that family and acquired 40 acres of land and started his life in New Harmony. And that's the beginning of who I am mm. is, is right there. I often say to people, um, it is possible that you had as good a childhood as I had, but it is very much, and I would say completely improbable that you had a better one than I had Mm -hmm. Uh, because New Harmony was populated by predominantly people that I was related to. Mm -hmm. Uh, No one uh, grew up and left. I mean, why would you leave a little paradise like that um, Mm -hmm. where you knew everyone and everyone knew you? Uh, That's the place I grew up, aunts, uncles, cousins, all around me, uh, the security of knowing that that was my family and it was a it was a part of something that I belonged to. Uh, the church there uh, was established by my great great grandfather, and he was the first preacher mm-hmm. in that church. So I was deeply rooted in the church, in the community, in family, mm-hmm. in our way of life, which was cotton farming. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cotton gin was owned by my uncles. Mm-hmm. Um, the general store by the cotton gin was owned by my uncles. Mm-hmm. And where I looked uh, was family. It was a, it was truly um, a a wonderful place to grow up, mm-hmm. and it's why I still love it so much today. You know, there's something that um, Mama Roo, my grandmother, your mom used to say, and it kind of makes me laugh when I think about this, because this is the true epitome of growing up in a small town where you're around everyone you're related to. She would give you some warnings about dating people when you were in high school. And what would she say about it? She would say, be careful who you date. You may be related to them. (laughs) And if you're not related to them, you're almost related to them. And by almost related, she meant? Uh, That would be someone who was married into the family that I was not blood related Mm -hmm. to, but we had common cousins Mm -hmm. uh, just from different sides of the family. (laughs) And so uh, 
I guess that's why I had to go all the way to Montgomery, Alabama to get a girl. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, it's, it's, it's uh, because of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the way we uh, lived probably not so much to our conscience knowledge of, of what was happening had a lot to do with my grandfather mm-hmm. uh, because he, uh, he and my grandmother just uh, were the hardest workers uh, that you can imagine. Uh, and, and they loved their family deeply mm-hmm. and they wanted to provide for the family. And so he, um, he bought land and, um, and hired people and, and let people live on his property. And he influenced many people outside of our family. Uh, he truly crafted, um, uh, the community that we all grew up in. So, okay. When he, when you say that he helped a lot of people kind of talk a little bit about that, because that was such a pivotal thing for him and grandma Plunkett. So they, um, they got married in what year? 1905, October 5th, 1905. 1905. So they decided that they were going to do something specific and it turned on them. And that it was kind of the, the pivotal point for them of how they were going to farm their land and how they were going to run their money, basically. Um, how frugal they were, how they did things very specifically and made their children work very hard. So kind of talk a little bit about that, that turning point for Grandma and Grandpa Plunkett and then how... The, the turning point for them, how the Lord really utilized them to help a lot of people during the depression. Well, every, every decision we make, um, creates the product of who we are today. Yeah. And so, so much of the decisions he and my grandmother made, made them into the product that they would become. Mm-hmm. Um, they married during harvest of 1905. Mm-hmm. So uh, they married. When you say during harvest of 1905, for people who are not from an agricultural community, explain what harvest of 1905, what were they harvesting? They were harvesting cotton and corn. Mm-hmm. And um, um, probably at that time, he was harvesting um, cotton and corn from his father's uh, place rather than his and my grandmother's place. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they got married, um, I sort of envisioned that they, they went to this 40 acres of land that was given to them along with the mule that his dad gave him. And they began to do the work in the late fall and winter of 1905 mm-hmm. uh, or late fall, or early winter of 1905 to begin to pre- prepare what they were going to be doing for themselves in that coming planting season. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that first year, uh, in my imagination, uh, they they had a uh, I would say a rather modest uh, area planted and and probably harvested a, a modest uh, result mm-hmm. uh, from that from that year's work. Um, and then the next year, uh, which would have been the harvest of 1907, my my grandfather purposed that uh, he was going to expand the farm. He was going to plant a lot more than he had the year before because apparently he had, he and my grandmother had done pretty well in 1906 mm-hmm. uh, and 1907. So mm-hmm. in the spring of 1908, he borrowed $7 mm-hmm. 
to expand his cotton production. And $7 then is like what today? Um, well, $20, $20 in gold, a $20 gold piece was worth $20 mm-hmm. in 1907. Um, today, a $20 gold piece would be worth $1,500. So right. it's 700 times more okay. than, than, than what I just described. So mm-hmm. $4,900, mm-hmm. $5,000. Right. That's a, that's a lot of money then. That's yeah, a chunk of change. Yeah. And so, um, but as oftentimes happens in agriculture, you can't predict what weather is going to do. You can't predict what your harvest is going to do for you. And 1908 didn't turn out well. Um, uh, he was, uh, from early on until the day he died, a very honorable man. Mm-hmm. He paid his debts. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be the last debt that he would have, mm-hmm. uh, because he had to, he had to sell his hogs. Um, and he had to basically give up what harvest he had had that year mm-hmm. to pay that debt. And he did, but he purposed that year. I'll never borrow another dime in my life. And he never did. What did they eat in that time? There was something very specific that Grandma Plunkett said they ate that year because it was something that you could eat that would keep you from starving to death, but right. it wasn't hardly anything. Well, they didn't have only that. She oh, okay. she, she, she um, canned all sorts of vegetables and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But the important thing that they did not have that year mm-hmm. was meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they had to sell all their hogs. Mm-hmm. So that meant you you had little or no lard. You had no pork, mm-hmm. which was the staple meat during the winters in farming communities. Yeah. And so um, that time of lack, scarcity for them, uh, changed them forever. Yeah. And he wouldn't borrow money for anything. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in the ensuing years, he did things... And I won't go into all the details, but he did a lot of things in order to get hard cash. Silver was the hard cash of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, very few people had gold mm-hmm. in those days. Um, he worked with an operation out of Coleman and the Elian Railroad mm-hmm. uh, to hang telegraph lines from Coleman uh, to an area near Blunt Springs, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and he was paid in hard cash for that. Mm-hmm. That meant he had to be away from home uh, to make that happen because in those days, that distance was a day and a half ride to, yeah. to get to that place. So um, he did that. He he cut um, he cut trees and, and split it into the rails that could be used by the steam engines of the day. Uh, and when those engine requirements purchased all that wood he had split, he also got hard cash. Mm-hmm. From that, yeah, he was a productive and capable planter, mm-hmm. and he raised great crops, uh, either because of his know-how or the blessings of the good Lord on high, or both. Uh, he did very well in his uh, agricultural pursuits. Uh, when the Great Depression came, then he had hard cash, mm-hmm. and those who had not learned the lessons of debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, many uh, found themselves in a situation where they had to sell the land. Yeah. Um, and uh, they were having to sell the land for the taxes in many cases. Uh, he had cash. And some people thought they owned land. Yeah. But they were sharecroppers. Right. But they were 
descendants of sharecroppers and were on the same land that had been around. So these people were getting wiped off their land, whether by having to sell it or whatever. So they were forced to leave. Be forced to leave. Right. Right. Those that were forced to leave their land were coming from uh, the Midwest, from Oklahoma um, and Nebraska and Iowa. And then there were there were those uh, in the South that were just losing their farms and they had no place to go, no way to produce food, no money. Mm-hmm. Um, and then no jobs. No jobs. Were available, yeah. Uh, everything was uh, horrendous. And so uh, he had families that would show up at his farm uh, just looking for work. Um, and I never heard him describe an incident, instance, in which a family came to ask him for work, he turned them away. Mm. He he put people to work immediately, and they began to work the land that he was acquiring, mm-hmm. and um, acquiring debt free. Absolutely, mm-hmm. and yeah. he and he was, uh, you know, he's producing wonderful crops from it, and in the midst of the depression, he was making deposits um, into the bank. Mm-hmm that would have been unheard of for most people of the day. Yeah. Um, he, um, in 1935, I think it was, he had uh, well over 30 wells drilled on his property. Mm. Um, you don't just go drill a well for nothing. Right. Uh, those wells were being drilled because there were families living in houses on his property. Houses that he literally looked at them and said, you can work. There's timber. Go build a house. Build a house. Go to work. Mm-hmm. And they did. And he drilled these wells so these people have water at, mm-hmm. at the houses that they were building. Yeah. Um, many of those wells are they're still there today. They're still operating. I can um, remember as a little girl going to your parents' house, which was once his house, mm-hmm. and wanting to run outside and play. And someone always said, now don't you go running in the woods, running around, because you might fall in one of them wells. And we never knew, like, we thought, what? Like, what well? We never actually knew why the wells were there. So, yeah. Right. Well, um, uh, that's something that we don't think about a great deal of the day because we we, uh, hook ourselves up to city water services and, and they turn the water on and you got water. Every right. day, a well was an important thing to the average person living in rural Alabama in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, knowing that he had those wells drilled, he had at least 30 families living on his farm. Right. In the height of the depression. Yes. Uh, and how did he kind of? How first of all, how did he pay these families? Because he paid them. Mm-hmm. How did all of these people eat? Um, how did they get new clothes? I mean, what did all of that look like? And what was grandma and grandpa Plunkett's role in that on top of having how many children? Uh, nine children. Nine. Yeah. And, um, the eight that survived. Right. You know, had one that died in, uh, in childhood. Um, it was, they truly were operating a, a business, uh, somewhat of a complicated business for the time. Mm-hmm. Um, every family planted a garden mm-hmm. that was there. Uh, he provided the seeds, uh, the fertilizer, uh, everything that was required to do it. He, you know, he provided that. 
He paid every working person 50 cents a day, rain or shine. Um, so work or no work. Work or no work, who's mm-hmm. paying 50 cents a day. But there was work for somebody to be doing every day mm-hmm. on Grover Plunkett's farm. Mm-hmm. Because uh, if it was raining, there were things to be done in the barn. And if the sun was shining, there were things to be done in the fields. Uh, so they worked uh, hard and they worked six days a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the main uh, form of entertainment was the all-day singings at churches around the area. Mm-hmm. And he had uh, he had a two-ton flatbed truck, and he would let everybody on his place know that uh, that he was going to be going to the singing on Sunday, and everybody wanted to go could ride on the truck for a nickel apiece. And uh, <laughs> everybody gave him a nickel and got on his truck and took everybody to an all-day singing. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine what that looked like for a for a big open flatbed farm truck to drive up with 40 people standing on the back of it mm-hmm. but that's that's the way that's the way he he operated um, he ran a little store out of his house not anything elaborate yeah but he could he could sell the folks uh, flour and meal and lard and coffee um, dry beans you know staples mm-hmm. uh, that he would buy in bulk in Coleman and then he would sell it out of his out of the house Fact, Selling it to people for money that he had already given them. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I've heard my dad, his son, often uh, talk about how many pounds of coffee he ground and sold uh, out of the house for a quarter, for four and a quarter pounds of coffee. So uh, to kind of give you an idea of the economy of what he was doing. Yeah. My grandmother made big meals so that all these farm hands could eat. So she fed everyone that was working. Yeah, she would make, I don't know, 40 or 50 biscuits uh, a day. From scratch. Mm -hmm. Every Uh, day. He made a baking pan from the door of a Model T car that was perfectly the size of their oven and their wood-burning stove. And so when she made biscuits, she got full efficiency of the area in that stove because every square inch of that that oven was covered in biscuits because he made the pan yeah. that the biscuits were made in. Mm-hmm. He was a blacksmith and he was a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I don't think I ever heard him say this, but I would say with pretty good confidence, he probably was the guy that made that, that baking pan. Yeah. Uh, she also made chocolate pie or chocolate pudding in that pan so that uh, she could feed all that enormous number of, of uh, hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, the amount of corn production that they had was amazing. He had a 40 by 40 two-story uh, corn crib. And uh, one of the stories of the time was how men would sit and talk about how they were going to plant their corn that year and um, the things that they were going to do to really make it work out well. And uh, one of the uh, old men uh sitting there in that conversation pointed to my grandfather's crib. He said, I ain't listening to you boys about how to plant corn. I'm going to take my advice from a man that's got corn in his crib. And he pointed to that enormous corn crib of my grandfather's with corns running out the eaves of the, of the building of how much he had produced. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was quite an operation. He owned 40 mules. They were mm-hmm. plowing 40 mules. He never, in his lifetime as a farmer, never owned a tractor. 
Number one, it costs too much in his <laughs> estimation. And number two, it would put another man out of work if you brought a tractor over the farm. So he... Um, so he would plow fields with the mule. Absolutely. And that is very challenging to do. When you look at the old plows, I mean, it kind of makes you want to cry at the thought of doing that all day long, plowing mm-hmm. fields. Anyways, continue. Well, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Unless your perspective is right, in which you look at it and you think how blessed you are to have that field to plow. Right. And when in that day, there were so many people that did not have mm-hmm. a field to plow. Um, and he acquired literally hundreds of acres of land yeah. um, from the late 1920s to the early 1940s and could have acquired more, but he didn't go, he wasn't going to go into debt to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So you had a really close relationship with him mm-hmm. growing up because you were the first grandchild that was born after his retirement, like he had retired from farming. So he had other grandchildren that were 10 plus years older than you. And then along came this little baby that was named after him. Yes. Grover Plunkett. And so he had a little bit more time on his hands. Um, He was still obviously probably doing a lot of things, but he had kind of retired from everyday chaos and he was older when you were born how old was he he was 72 72 when i was born Mm -hmm. um and uh it 72 is actually um that's the year he he quit actively farming himself okay Uh, and that doesn't mean he wasn't actively involved in farming right uh it was just more that he was more involved with his sons overseeing and and their farming yeah operations um and how many sons did he have Oh, that's a good question. Uh, you caught me off guard with that. He had seven. Sorry. He had seven sons and two daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, he had one son who died age very, at age two or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, so he had six sons that lived into adulthood, mm-hmm. and uh, um, they were farmers. Yeah. So he was really more so kind of overseeing them, helping them. Giving wisdom is what I would gather, kind of. Yeah. He was more than an overseer and advisor. <laughs> he was probably be more described as the as the um, the older head that you would kind of wish would get out of the way so you could get your job done. <laughs> but um, but everybody respected what he had to say greatly because, I mean, you can't argue with success. Right. Um, and so everybody took his... Uh, they took his his uh, advice to heart. Yeah, yeah. So you were close to him. Yes. You always talk about how you would come home from school on a Friday and he'd be waiting for you in the yard. He was always sitting in his 59 Chevy um, in our front yard, waiting for him to get off the school bus. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I would get a grocery bag and stuff a few things in it, and I was too eager to get in the car and, and leave with him. Mm-hmm. Um, he always seemed absolutely ancient to me. Um, and, and he, he was a storyteller. He loved to tell stories. And so I was fascinated by mm-hmm. all the things that, that he would tell. 
but not only would he tell stories, he did it in a way to teach a lesson. Mm-hmm. And uh, oftentimes I would walk with him. We would be walking down a fence row. Um, maybe it was looking at somebody's crops. He, he planted a lot of, he planted a lot of peas in fence rows so that the, the quail would, would come and they would eat peas, forage for peas in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. And he always had a lot of quail on the property. Mm-hmm. Um, a lesson we could learn today because there's virtually no quail in our community anymore. Mm-hmm. But um, inevitably, in the in the late fall, when I'd be walking with him, uh, we would run upon a, a highland terrapin. Okay, for somebody who doesn't know what that is, a highland terrapin is a kind of like a turtle. Yes, but yeah. it's a land dweller. Right. Terra for land, yes. pen, mm-hmm. pen for feet. So it's a land-footed animal, not a turtle that drills in the water. Right, right. Okay. So uh, he would, we would see one of these little creatures, and they're very docile, peaceful little guys. Uh, would pick, he would pick it up. He would sit on the fence post, and of course, a terrapin then is completely helpless because his legs are moving. He's sitting mm-hmm. on his shell on a fence post. He, he can't get anywhere. He can't move. He's just up that high, and there he is. Uh, but he would put the, the terrapin on the fence post, and he would say, now, if you, if you ever see a terrapin sitting up on a fence post, one thing you can know for sure, he didn't get up there by himself. Mm-hmm. You're sitting here crying, and there's a moral to the story. <laughs> we cry well, a lot in this family. Well... This is why your stories last so long. I can't get a grip on myself. It's okay. Let me back up. A person doesn't weep for uh, or grieve over a long time for the bad things that happened in the past. Mm-hmm. People, I grieve. Um, over the good things of the past mm-hmm. that no longer exist. Mm-hmm. And so when I tell the story about a terrapin, um, whoever your listener is probably sitting, okay, here's a 60-something-year-old guy sitting here crying over a land-dwelling turtle. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, as I tell the story, I can see his face. Mm-hmm. Uh, the expression, um, the lesson he was trying to teach. Yeah. Um, he knew that he didn't get where he was in life by himself. Yeah. He knew I wouldn't get to any place in my life by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at that age, I think he was pouring as much of himself into me Mm -hmm. as he possibly could because he knew, unlike myself, Mm -hmm. that he wasn't going to live forever. Right. Um, I didn't know that when I was that age. Yeah. Um, He was ancient. I thought he would live forever Mm -hmm. in my mind. Uh, But he didn't. Yeah. But the grand thing about it is 
He told me so many of these stories till it's as though they were yesterday. Yeah. He didn't put up with nonsense. Mm -hmm. He didn't put up with people doing bad things. Right. And, and many of the folks that lived there knew that. And so these people that lived on his place, uh, they knew that they got out of line with my grandfather. They were about, they would lose a way of life, a home, a job, a community. Mm -hmm. There was a lot more at stake than, than just, uh, a relationship with some old crazy man. Mm -hmm. Um, and those that craft communities like he did crafted something very special. Yeah. Um, there's very few of those places that are left around. Yeah. It was, it was unique. Mm -hmm. Still is. Yeah. And so much of what he did, you can attribute to him and know that, did he have you in mind? Did he think my grandchildren will have this and I'm going to do this for my grandchildren? Or was he just thinking about a way of life? I don't really know, but you are a person who gets to reap the benefits of his choice and his frugality and his wise decision makings. Um, yeah. The most important thing mm -hmm. that I inherited from him was his name. Mm -hmm. I think that's why uh, the Bible teaches us that... Um, a good name is to be desired above silver and gold mm -hmm. um, because, you know, the land that we own there today, you and your sisters and your mom and I, is not land that I inherited from him, mm -hmm. um, but it's, it's land that he once owned. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we have acquired it over time and I would like to maintain the, continue to craft the community that, that he was so much a part of uh, so long ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's what we've done. Yeah. Uh, so I've, I've inherited his name. Uh, I hope I've inherited his work ethic. I hope I've inherited his, his love of people and, um, and love of land and, and what it can mean for you. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a very special person. He was married to a very special person. Yeah. Who I'm named after. Who you're named for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, we, well, can't, we can't take our names for granted. we got to be careful about that because those, those were hard-earned mm -hmm. uh, reputations. Right. Well, if you could say one thing to whoever's listening today about anything that we've talked about, what would be an important thing that you would share? Uh, that every person uh, has a purpose in this life, uh, whether you're wealthy or whether you are just barely making ends meet, you have a purpose. And a big part of that purpose is to, is to craft a place that people want to be. Uh, they want to, uh, when they're around you, um, they, they say, I want to be close to that person. That, there's, there's wisdom, there's goodness, there's uh, opportunity, there's, you know, all the good things in life that a person's looking for can be found um, by being associated with another good person. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's what made him so special. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think that's what um, that's what I try to do mm-hmm. is to create a, a community, whether it be in Montgomery or whether it's in New Harmony, Alabama, is is to craft a community where people want to be mm-hmm. because it's good. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't want to, when I, when I experience it, I don't want to leave it. Yeah. You know, give, leave that kind of an impression. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks, Dad. Appreciate you. I'll try not to cry next time. <laughs> Y'all, thank you so much for listening in today. I hope this story left you encouraged as you go about the rest of your day and week. If you want to follow along with updates, blogs, and more episodes, head over to my website, laurabellwrites.com to subscribe so you can stay up to date. If you want to follow along on social media, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram. You can like the Y'all Podcast page on Facebook, or you can follow the Y'all Podcast Instagram account. If you want, you can take a peek inside my personal Instagram feed at Laura underscore Jean underscore Bell. I would love to connect with you. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can be notified for every new episode. I'll talk to y'all soon.